In 2017, in an old people's home in England, a frail-looking old man died. But he had been, previously, not at all frail, but very bold, very strong in his spirit, man. He was called Errol Hulse, and he was a minister. He was born in South Africa, but he'd lived much of his life in England, been a minister somewhere down south of London, in the sort of area I get in the muddle with. I think it's called Sussex. And he'd written books and articles on evangelism, but he'd also been a bold evangelist himself. And not just when engaged in evangelistic activities, but in ordinary life too. Here's an example, being from South Africa and still loving Africa. He was once in Johannesburg Airport and he saw Nelson Mandela. And Errol Hulse was quite an extrovert person. And I think you could say he was probably quite a pushy person as well. And so he went up to Nelson Mandela. And he told him of his need to be saved by relying on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Would you do that? Saw Nelson Mandela in the airport? Would that be your first thought? I hope it would be. I hope we would do it. I hope at least we'd have the heart to do it. But if we're honest, we've all got different gifts, haven't we? And not all of us would manage it, if any of us would. We've all got different gifts. God has made us in different ways. We wouldn't all necessarily manage that. But there are some things that all Christians can and should do to spread the gospel. And we've been hearing five of them. Well, we're part way through hearing five of them. There are some things that some people can do. There are some things it would be good if you can manage, but not all can. But there are five things that all Christians both can and should do to spread the gospel. Praying for the gospel, giving for the gospel, living for the gospel, speaking for the gospel, although we don't all speak in the same way and manage to speak in the same way, and being part of a gospel church. And last time we got to speaking for the gospel, and we heard what I think is the most important aspect of that, which is, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The key is having a heart full of Jesus Christ. If your heart is full of Christ, you will speak about him, and it won't just be in this building. But we should also work at how we speak about him, as we'll find out, I hope, this evening. And we're going to do so from this verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Let's read just verse 15 again. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. We're going to ask a series of questions about this verse to help us practically with speaking for the gospel. So I have, I think it's five questions. It tells you on the notice sheet. First one is this, what's the point of speaking? Now, verse 15 appears rather suddenly in 1 Peter. It's not a letter that's particularly about evangelism. That might sound like heresy to you. Uh, I'm not saying there's no evangelism there. You'll find out in a minute. I'm saying something quite different from that. But it's not particularly been an emphasis of 1 Peter. Why is this verse here? What's the point? Well, let's see how it fits in the letter. This is a letter written to Christians in an unbelieving world. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, what today we call Turkey. They were not in Jerusalem, where people's beliefs had been shaped by the scriptures. They were not in the Bible Belt of the USA, with a a heritage of of a lot of church going. They were in a place where people's outlook on life and moral standards were totally different from the Bible. That's rather like the UK today. It's a letter written to Christians in a hostile world. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They were living among people who accused them of being wrong for being Christians. Being a Christian is wrong. In fact, they called them Christians atheists because they didn't have any visible God. Now, it wasn't like the Roman Empire under Nero. Christians weren't yet being thrown to lions or set on fire. But the heat was being turned up on them. They were finding themselves being pushed out of jobs, excluded from certain areas of society, Uh, social pressure being exerted on them. Again, that's rather like the UK today. It's written to Christians in an unbelieving world, a hostile world, and in a watching world. That is quite a theme of this book. Chapter 2, verse 12 again, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. They're watching. What are they going to see? Chapter 2, verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, starts a section talking about ordinary life. Be a good citizen. Be a good slave if you were a slave. Be a good wife. Be a good husband. Ordinary life. Because people are watching. What are they going to see? Verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. They they should see you and it should silence the wrong things they say. Chapter 3, verse 16. When we give an answer, keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander because they see that your life isn't like they're slandering it. Again, rather like the UK today. People are watching us. So it's written to Christians in an unbelieving, hostile, watching world. And what what are these Christians doing there in this unbelieving, hostile and watching world? Why has God put them there? Well, the answer in 1 Peter is, he's put them there to be a people for his glory. He's put them there to display his glory. For example, chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Or chapter 2, verse 12, for the third time that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Or one more example, chapter 4, verse 11. 
Chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. They're in this unbelieving, hostile and watching world to bring glory to God. So, back to chapter 3, verse 15. Why is it there? Why are we to be ready to give an answer to people? But when we take the verse in context, it's because we've been put here to glorify God before an unbelieving, hostile and watching world. Now, I hope you also say, and because we want people to be saved, I hope there was some reaction like that in you, and because we want people to be saved, yes, But the number one answer here is because we want God to be glorified. Because the number one love of our life should be God. Is it? There's why we should speak. Now, second question to ask about this verse. Why would anyone ask you? Why would anyone ask you? It says, be ready to give a reason, an answer to anyone who, well, they've got to ask, haven't they? Why would they ask you? Now, Hollywell Church supports uh, Val Owens, who's a Friends International worker in Sutton, Bonington. She meets international students. She organises Bible studies with them. She uh, runs a global cafe for them. In other words, she is proactive about getting the gospel to them. This verse is Christians in ordinary life, at school, at work, out with friends, Being reactive, answering when someone asks you. It isn't specifically talking about the evangelist, it's just all of us answering when someone asks you. But why would anyone ask? Well, let's see the reasons we've got here in chapter 3. The first one is suffering. Verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. 1 Peter has a lot about suffering. It was written to Christians who were suffering. Now, suffering itself won't get people asking you about hope. Lester Royal Infirmary has many people in it who are suffering. But for most of them, sadly, there's nothing about them to get you asking, what's this amazing hope I can see you have? So suffering on its own won't show hope, but reaction to suffering may. Some of us were here on Thursday for Bill Bowler's funeral. No, Friday, Thursday. Thursday. And we heard that he suffered. He suffered a lot of ill health. Towards the end of his life, he couldn't hear or see very much. And that was a pretty miserable state to be in. And... As we heard, his reaction, did it get him down? Yes, it did. To be honest, it did get him down. There's no denying that. But he looked forward to being with Christ. His reaction to suffering showed he had hope. There's one thing that may prompt people to ask us. Not just suffering itself, but how do we react to it? Here's another way that suffering shows hope. Suffering for doing what's right and continuing in it. Have a look again at verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. It's not any old suffering. 
But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. It's suffering for doing what's right. And the thing that shows hope is that you then continue doing what's right, even though it gets you more suffering. So compare with chapter 4, verse 19. Chapter 4, verse 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. A teenager at school being shunned and being thought odd and prejudiced because he doesn't go along with the unclean jokes and just the prevailing sexual immorality around him, if he doesn't give in to that but continues to hold to those Christian standards, shows a hope. Shows he's got something better, actually, to live for than popularity. Hard though it is to be unpopular and shunned. If he's going to continue doing good, he must have a hope that outweighs that form of suffering. Closely connected with this is not fearing what others fear. Chapter 3, verse 14 again. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Not fearing what others fear shows a hope. What do people around us fear? Well, they fear missing out, don't they? What if I miss out? What if I get to the end of life and I haven't fulfilled my bucket list? I really dislike that phrase, bucket list, but most people seem to know these days what it means. I haven't fulfilled my bucket list. I haven't achieved those dreams. People fear missing out. They fear not having what they consider to be enough money. And by the way, the more you have, the more you consider you need. They fear pain and discomfort. Don't blame them, do you? They fear death. And that's fairly sensible, if you're an unbeliever, to fear that. If we are calm in in the face of those fears... If we're not desperate to get, I must have that and I mustn't miss out. If we're not desperate to avoid, I can't allow that to happen. Whatever happens, I cannot allow that. It shows we have a different hope from those around us. So suffering, not fearing, or at least reaction to suffering and why we suffer, not fearing. And here's a third thing that may prompt people to ask us about our hope. It is... Have you set apart Christ as Lord? Verse 15. Verse 15 is originally one sentence, not two. So it does go together. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Or being prepared to give an answer. See, it follows from setting apart Christ as Lord. Because having Christ as Lord in your heart means you'll obey him in your life including when it's hard and costly. Because he's not really Lord, is he, if you just happen to do what he says when it fits in nicely. At a conference recently, I heard someone who works with teenagers in Luton. Now, this person was quite unlike me. She was young and trendy and very much in touch with young people and considerably broader theologically in what she would accept. Now, I set that context so you know it's not some real old-fashioned reactionary person just she said nominal young Christians are basically now a thing of the past because she said look at what the Bible expects of you 
It is so out of line with our society. Being a Christian, she said, for a young person now, will involve some degree of unpopularity. Because Christian living now is so different from what most people do. Christian moral standards are seen as immoral by most of society, and particularly by young people. Obeying Christ as Lord is getting harder in our society. And so it shows up, if you stick with it, that you have a hope. If you set apart Christ as Lord, there will be a cost. And increasingly in our society it will be noticeable. And that will show there must be something else you're hoping in, not the things the world hopes in. Now, I've spent quite a while on this section... Why would anyone ask you? Because there's no point preparing how to answer if no one's asking us the question. Because our life doesn't prompt them. Because our life doesn't get them wondering. Our lives should be getting people to say this sort of thing in their heads, even if they don't say it out loud. What are you living for? Because it doesn't seem to be what most people are living for. Third question about verse 15 How do people ask us? So we've had why answer, then why would they ask? And now thirdly, how do people ask us? Now, this is an important question. How would they ask? I'll try to illustrate why it's important to consider this. Imagine you're at work and you're sitting at your desk or about to get into your lorry or whatever it is you do at work and a work colleague comes up to you and says, excuse me, I hope you don't mind me asking this but could you give me a reason for the hope that is in you? Does that happen? (laughs) Anyone had that happen to them? I haven't. doesn't happen like that, does it? I don't think it does. If you are waiting for that to happen, you'll never do this verse. But the question does happen, just in different forms. So we ought to now spend some time considering the sort of forms it may come in, otherwise we'll miss it. Because we'll be waiting for what I've just described and it probably won't happen. But it could be like this. One Monday you're talking about your weekend and you mention that you went to church. And the question comes, well, why do you go to church? What do you get out of it? Do you realise what a nice sunny day out with us you missed? Now, the word hope didn't appear in that set of questions. But it is a question about what you value. It is a question about what you want in life, even if they don't think it is. It is really, isn't it? It's a question about what do you have or expect from God that's better than a sunny day out with us? Well, it's an opening, isn't it, to do verse 15. Another example. Friends are getting ready to go out on a Saturday night. They say, why don't you come out with us tonight? You could meet someone who could give you a bit of fun tonight. Now, again, they're not asking you about heaven. They haven't got heaven in their mind at all. But they're saying you are missing out because you're sticking to those standards of yours which we think are ridiculous standards. And they're effectively asking why. Why do you stick with those standards that miss out? I mean, you miss out on a bit of fun with someone tonight. And the answer involves explaining you have something better than what they're offering. It's verse 15, isn't it? Another example, unsaved relatives seeing you suffer ask, how do you cope with it? 
Well, the answer, if you're coping in a Christian manner, is because even if this suffering continues until death, there is a glory that outweighs by far it all. Sometimes the question can be put in a very antagonistic way. Look at all the suffering that's on the news. How can you believe in a God of love? Well, isn't that really saying, how can there be any hope? How can you really maintain that there is any hope? That there's a God that can give you hope when you look at the state the world is in? So don't wait for someone to ask you a question with the word hope in that you can say, aha, that sounds like 1 Peter 3.15. Because the verse could already be coming to you in a whole load of other forms. Look out for them. Fourth question. How can you be prepared to answer? How can you be prepared to answer? Now, notice what Peter doesn't say in verse 15. He doesn't say, try to give an answer. He doesn't say, the Holy Spirit will give you an answer. He says, always be prepared to have an answer, to give an answer. And that means we must do some preparing before it happens. Beware of the idea that spontaneous is more spiritual. We do tend to think like that, don't we? You know, people who really work at something, plan at something, learn something, well, that's just human. Spiritual means spontaneous. Where do you get that from? Not the Bible. So, if we're going to do this, we have to prepare before the question comes. How do we prepare? Well, one obvious thing is know the gospel. Know what it is. What is the human problem and need? What did Jesus do about it? How do we receive what he did? What does that result in? Do you know the answers to those questions? Do you have a clear, simple answer to those questions? I'll repeat them. What is the human problem and need? What did Jesus do about it? How do we receive what he did? And what's the result of all that? Now, we need to be able to simply, clearly answer those pretty basic questions. So know what the gospel is. Know why you believe it. Now, this doesn't mean you have to have brilliant answers to all the objections. Don't keep silent until you've got brilliant answers to all the questions. You will keep silent all your life. Sometimes it's most effective simply to explain why did, how did you personally come to believe it? People like to hear that something is actually real for you and not just a theory. Sometimes it can just be that. But the thing that really persuaded me, or the thing that showed it up to me was, and you can tell your story in a simple, brief way. Personally, I like to keep these three questions up my sleeve. Well, why is the world here? What is the Bible? And why is Jesus remembered? It seems to me they're three simple questions that that tell how I was persuaded that that this message is true. Because why is the world here if there isn't a great designer? What is the Bible that fits together, written over hundreds of years, if it's not the word of God? And why is Jesus remembered if he didn't rise from the dead? He'd be a forgotten failure of history like so many others. So know what the gospel is. Know why you believe it. And find a way to say it that avoids words that unbelievers just don't get. 
I knew a man called Chris who was very enthusiastic to tell people the gospel. I wish more of us, including me, had his enthusiasm. And when we were doing open-air preaching, he would chase after people in the town centre saying, have you been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Now, think about the words, washed, blood and Lamb. I reckon all unbelievers know those words, don't they? Put, Put them together and they're really confused. Now, again, I'd rather, really, really, I'd rather have his enthusiasm than be really correct and know what to say and be quite cold and lukewarm. But wouldn't it be great if we could have his enthusiasm and put it more clearly? And that takes working at. Well, there's some little pointers on how you can be prepared to answer. Fifth and last question... How should you answer? And the answer to this is in verse 16. How should you answer? Verse 16. Well, it's the end of verse 15 too. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Gently, respectfully, making sure your life matches with what you say. Remember your aim is to win a person, not to win an argument. Treat them as a person made in God's image, who has a mind that is reasonable. I know it's sinful, but it is also reasonable. Made in God's image and to be one for Christ. I saw an interesting example about this recently. Someone I know who lives locally put a post on Facebook and it said this. I'll read you her Facebook post. It said, two shouty men competing in the town centre. One telling us to repent because Jesus, the other selling freshly made black country style pork scratchings. That went up on Facebook fairly recently. Uh, Now, I don't know who the people she was referring to, but... It's interesting to me, that comment and also that post and then the comments that came under it. Because that post and then the comments that came under it were a reminder, people don't like feeling shouted at, they want something gentle. That's not surprising, that's in our verse. It was a reminder that people expect to be given reason. So it was interesting she put someone shouting, repent because Jesus... In other words, she was saying it wasn't really properly reasoned. Now, I don't know if it was, because you don't know that she's being fair on the person. But it's a reminder, it's respectful to treat people as reasonable, as thinkers, and to give them reasons, and not to make presumptions, because people don't believe a lot of the things that we believe and that we'd see as obvious starting points. But the comments also showed this. When you read through the comments, the comments also showed that people were very blunt and clear that they'd rather have pork scratchings than have Jesus if they were confronted by the two shouters. In fact, they didn't really object very much to the man shouting about pork scratchings. And so it's a reminder, we need more than words alone. However gentle, however respectful, however reasoned, they are not going to save people. Because we are speaking to people dead towards God. And our words are not going to bring life to their hearts. 
The Holy Spirit may use our words to bring life to their hearts, but he needs to get active. We need him to change hearts. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 was written to ordinary Christians living in a situation rather like the UK today. And it gives us something practical all Christians can and should do. So will you prepare? Will you prepare? Don't wait for the question to be asked. We need to prepare beforehand. Will you prepare so you can answer those who ask about the hope you have? Will you live in a way that prompts people to ask? Will you look out for the questions that come, maybe in a way you didn't expect? And will you answer in a way that is gentle, respectful, and will you keep a clear conscience? Because it's very hard to speak, and it's certainly very unlikely to know God's blessing if we're doing it without a clear conscience. We've got unrepented of sin that doesn't match what we're saying.